is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The mental health crisis in the U.S. now reaching the point to where an influential group of medical experts recommending that all adults under 65 get screened for anxiety. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force made similar recommendations earlier this year to begin anxiety screening in children and teens. We'll go in depth into what is clearly a growing problem. President Biden apparently will not commit to running for re-election in 2024, and if he does not, a familiar name to everyone in California probably will. Gee, I wonder who that could be. Hmm. The, The Supreme Court may have to decide for good if social media companies can censor political speech. People in the state will have the choice in a few years of becoming compost when they die. We'll talk about how that works, how it might be better for the environment than cremation. Aid organizations now helping people in Puerto Rico after the hurricane. A lot of people still without power. Your breathing muscles could be key to lowering your blood pressure and LED lights being criticized because of the light pollution they cause at night. Can you become compost while you're alive? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I haven't done anything in years. I've just been sitting here. We start, though, with uh, anxiety screening recommendations. With us is Dr. Mo Gelbart, Director of Behavioral Health at Torrance Memorial Medical Center. Doctor, thanks for being with us. I mean, it sounds like a rather drastic recommendation that all adults under 65 get screened for anxiety. Is that overkill? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I don't believe it's overkill in the sense that, you know, primary care physicians are already screening everybody that comes in for alcohol use. They're already screening everybody that comes in for depression. And given that anxiety is the number one mental health uh, issue and affects millions and millions of people and is on a significant rise, it's not surprising that 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 be added to the list of screening tools. So what does the screening look like? I mean, the alcohol one is easy. Do you drink? How many a day or whatever? The depression one, you know, how how have you been feeling lately? We get these kind of questions during the yearly physical if you go. So what are the anxiety questions? They'd be similar. They'd be a a, very quick tool. Uh, It would be four or five or seven questions, depending on which ones any particular clinic decides to use. And, you know, these are, again, just screening uh, tools. They're not definitive. They're not like taking an x-ray of your mind. And they just help uh, highlight some potential risk factors involved. There is a downside, of course, since you just mentioned the, uh, the, the screen, the alcohol and the depression. You know, the primary care physician is completely overloaded. And, you know, on one hand, now we have another screening. You know, just doing the screening is one thing, but then they have to examine the results and begin talking to the person about what those results are. And quite often, the majority of the time, the these are not the issues that brought the person into the uh, primary care doctor's office. Not to mention that people are often anxious just by going to the doctor's office, so their answers may be skewed. I would suspect just because of their visit. But well, but, that would be true, and that's. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, but, but but the other issue that that comes up potentially is over medicating people. Uh, that I could see a scenario where doctors, some anyway, might be a little bit too quick to say to a patient, yeah, you definitely fit the the uh, the metric for being anxious. Here's a prescription to help you. And then we end up with a bunch of adults who may not really need to be medicated. medicated. 
That's a great point, and hopefully that does not occur. That should not occur by any means, because a quick screening tool that they would use in a uh, office would not provide enough of a diagnostic information for them to, you know, make make that decision to put somebody on medication. Uh, but perhaps I think of another uh, potential uh, difficulty, which is there's such an a, a dire need for mental health care that what is the primary care doctor going to do with these patients? Like you say, he may medicate them, hopefully not, without further exploration. But if he wants that person to get some mental health uh, attention or treatment, it is really, really difficult in this day and age to find that. Yeah, I was curious about that. I mean, do we know if primary care physicians are more likely to send you to a psychologist for therapy, or are they more likely to just go straight to a psychiatrist for pills? I think they're, you know, again, anxiety exists on a continuum of mild to moderate to very severe. We all, one thing about anxiety, we all experience anxiety to some degree. And it's, in fact, some anxiety is actually very useful and helpful. Uh, If I'm going to give a talk and I'm going to go on radio and I feel a little anxious, it helps me prepare. It helps me get ready. It helps clear my mind a little bit. So not all anxiety is bad anxiety, number one. Uh, But but in terms of who they will refer to, uh, if a person's on the severe end and they need some uh, medication, then then they'd be wise, of course, to refer to a psychiatrist. Otherwise, a psychologist or a therapist, psychotherapist, would be beneficial for helping a person talk through those issues. Dr. Mo Gelbart, Director of Behavioral Health, Torrance Memorial Medical Center. Right now, President Biden was asked on 60 Minutes whether he is running for re-election in 2024. This was his response. My intention, as I said to begin with, is that I would run again. But it's just an intention. But is it a firm decision that I run again? That remains to be seen. Now, this comes as a report from the Raps, as Governor Newsom, we all remember him, is undeniably, unequivocally planning to run for the White House if if the president chooses not to run. Susan Page is USA Today's Washington bureau chief. Susan, thanks again for coming on the show. So let's take Biden first. It was, some people think, a kind of weird answer. Uh, One would think he wouldn't want to be even thought of as a potential lame duck. And by not saying firmly, well, of course I want to be president in another term, it does leave open that speculation, doesn't it? You know, I think this is one of those rare cases where he was asked a question. And even though he's a politician, our nation's top politician, he just answered the question. I think that's how he feels. I think he he intends to run. He hopes to run. But he's always left a little bit of a hedge in response to this question. Sometimes he says, but I'll have to confer with Jill about that. And the idea that he hasn't firmly made up his mind, I think, is I think it's consistent with with him. He takes a long time to make decisions. He took a long time to decide not to run in 2016 and to, and to run in 2020. So I think that uh, the, uh, one other part of what he said to 60 Minutes, which I thought was interesting, he said, as we head into the new year, I'll make a decision. So he doesn't put up a big, very long timeline, uh, but he's not quite ready yet to say for sure that he'll run for a second term. So let's take our governor. Is he already running? I mean, if not, what is all this for? Putting up billboards, getting in fights with Ron DeSantis, really doing most of the statements that he does are like for national audiences. You know, I think it's clear that uh, Governor Newsom and Governor DeSantis are both running. 
and they both have uh, kind of big figures in the field to think about. Uh, in DeSantis's case, it's Donald Trump. And in Newsom's case, it's having to decide if he would run if Biden chose to run again. I think most there are lots of Democrats who'd like to be president, but most of them are not willing to challenge the incumbent president if he decides to seek a second term. Well, and doesn't Newsom have a second problem? I mean, let's say Biden decides he's not going to run. Uh, you know, Newsom and uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, have a long history together. They've been friends a very long time. And I get it that in politics, I guess there's no such thing as a really good friend. But uh, wouldn't that present a unique challenge for him? Because usually vice presidents are kind of considered the heir apparent, aren't they? Well, they are actually, I think that they do not, uh, they are not guaranteed winning the top spot. We've seen that. Uh, we've seen that in several cases in modern times. And, uh, you know, I think uh, Kamala Harris is not a dominant enough vice president to assume that she won't be challenged if Joe Biden decides not to run again. Indeed, uh, if she does, I think that there are a half dozen other senators and governors and public officials on the Democratic side who would uh, who would choose to run. It would be it would look something like it looked last time. Remember that big field and it included both Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, you might see some of those same people again. I see the political pundits tweeting, Gavin Newsom is about to find out how actually disliked he is in the rest of the country. Is that uh, what you see happening? Well, you know, um, uh, I think Gavin Newsom isn't well known in much of the country. Uh, I know that's hard to understand in California because you are, of course, the center of the universe. Um, <laughs> but I'm not sure he's someone who has a really high profile. And maybe that's one reason we see him, uh, you know, trying to raise his profile, including in some of these states we think will have have early contests. If 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 President Biden decides not to run again, I think we're going to have a free for all on the on the Democratic side. And in those cases, you know, uh, you cannot, it is very risky to predict what, what is going to happen. It, is there a particular scenario on the Democratic side that's either better or worse for the re-entrance of Donald Trump? For Democrats, well, uh, Dem you know, Democrats, I think, would uh, prefer not to run against Donald Trump again. I think, for one thing, Democrats see Donald Trump as dangerous to democracy, including his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. So I think there are kind of public service reasons that there's concern about Trump winning. And also, you know, he came pretty close to winning a second term. It wasn't a blowout by Joe Biden, although Joe Biden won both the Electoral College and the popular vote. Uh, you know, I think that that uh, Trump really pushes a lot of buttons for Democrats. I think they would prefer to see some other candidate. But of course, it's it's not up to them. And do you guys figure that Trump runs again? What do you think? If I had a bet? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. I, I've known him a long time. I've, I've known him all the way going back to the late 80s in New York City. And and I just think it's I think he's genetically incapable of not. He has to do it. All yeah. Right. Susan Page, USA Today's Washington Bureau Chief. What would Gavin Newsom say something like, uh, it's an iterative process, and we're going to meet the moment. You know, all these Gavinisms? Yes. Yeah, we're going to hear those. People are going to go, what? <laughs> what? Because that's what we do. We go, what? what? The Supreme Court may have the final say on social media, big tech, and censorship. Onto this now. Two cases working their way through the court systems. Different rulings. One late last week was a win for uh, those against censorship over political ideology on social media. The other one went the other way. 
Jeffrey Blevins, social media expert, professor in the Department of Journalism and School of Public International Affairs, University of Cincinnati. Thanks for being with us. So reading through some of this, I keep seeing the same general idea that something will come to these cases if they get to the Supreme Court, some new law, because what we have on the books right now, it doesn't really cover this because it's still like a new frontier out there. Well, I think that's partly true. Uh, And thank you for having me on. You know, uh, the law had been settled on this, but one of the reasons that a Supreme Court would, you know, grant cert is because you have a conflict among the circuits. And that's what we have here. Uh, The 11th Circuit has uh, applied, you know, the Telecommunications Act and our understanding of the First Amendment the way it has typically been applied. And the First Amendment, or excuse me, the Fifth uh, Circuit has gone in a different direction uh, in saying that the uh, Texas law uh, could be uh, implemented. All right. So what what does it mean in terms of depending on how the court rules? Give us a quick uh, sort of brief description of what the impact would be on consumers of social media. Right. Well, you know, the, the status quo is now is that, you know, our social media platforms, uh, online platforms have First Amendment rights just as as we do as individuals. So they are seen as editors of, of, of content. They are free to moderate content however, uh, you know, they uh, decide. These are not considered, you know, uh, public spaces. These are not considered, um, you know, uh, government uh, uh, property. So if, you know, you're unhappy with the content on one platform uh, or, you know, your, uh, you know, viewpoint isn't being uh, expressed, isn't being accepted on that platform, you have other platforms uh, to go to. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, free spoke is one true social, uh, is, uh, is another. And that's typically the way that we have, we have understood, uh, you know, uh, the law. Even if you go back to newspapers in the Miami Herald versus, uh, Tornillo case in the seventies, where here you had a, a newspaper that did not endorse one of the candidates, I believe it was for school board. And that candidate wanted to be uh, included, uh, wanted to have an editorial statement that the paper had to publish, and they refused to. And the Supreme Court said, no, there are plenty of other uh, uh, newspapers out there. There are plenty of other ways for, you know, Tornillo to have a platform uh, to speak. And that was in the in the age of, of print. Uh, and online, there is a plethora of platforms uh, that are out there. If one of these sides wins, though, and let's say someone is posting a conspiracy theory, if they're a politician and they're posting a conspiracy theory and this goes all the way up to the court and the rules uh, are made very clear, does that mean that now these platforms cannot get those taken off? Does it limit their censorship or or how they can police their, their own platform? That would uh, yes. So, for instance, if the Supreme Court upheld, uh, for instance, the the Fifth uh, Circuit's uh, decision, that would absolutely be the case. Essentially, uh, they would be saying that um, social media platforms are common carriers, much like um, our you know telephone services, right? So, you know, telephone companies or mobile uh, telecommunication carriers. They can't deny service to anyone. They have to, you know, carry all messages, but they're not responsible for the content of those messages, and they're not seen uh, as as speakers. And that would be a radically different way of, of viewing uh, social media platforms. Jeffrey Blevins, social media expert, professor, University of Cincinnati. 
This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. You want to get back to the earth when you die? You'll be able to give your body to it. Governor Newsom signing a law that will let people choose human composting as a burial method when they die starting in 2027. It is already legal in three states, Washington, Colorado, and Oregon. Carolyn Mazes is co-founder of Earth Funeral, which offers human composting. Caroline, thanks for being with us. So, you know, Mike and I uh, were talking before. It never actually occurred to either of us that someday we would want to be turned into compost. And I'm not sure whether that's a pleasant idea. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be one of those, like, do you come around over the course of the segment? Well, we'll Uh let's test it. Uh, So, Caroline, sell me on it. Pitch me. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. We are so excited to hear the news that it passed in California, and it actually passed in Vermont earlier this year. So I think we have a real movement on our hands, and it's really resonating with a lot of people. Um, I think that one of the big benefits from, you say, human composting, we actually call it soil transformation, and its legal term is natural organic reduction. One of the biggest benefits for it from it is that it offers a green alternative. Something like over 60% of consumers are looking for a greener choice in their death care, and this is the greenest option. Um, Over about 30 to 45 days, the body is naturally and gently transformed into nutrient-rich compost. That compost can actually be returned to the earth. Family can scatter it as you would cremated remains or plant a tree, plant a garden. We offer consumers the option to donate soil to our conservation project on the Olympic Peninsula as well. And so our last act, instead of being one of pollution, can actually be a gift to the earth and can help to regenerate ecosystems for future generations. How much soil do you get from me? Yeah, so on average, uh, each process produces up to a cubic yard of soil. So that's kind of a few wheelbarrows full, or maybe even like the back of a pickup truck. I, I never thought of Mike if you as this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to picture person, you now. But yeah, yeah. That's like that's like a good part of a yard. Yeah. Like I could do so, a lot of work. So so you Car- could. <laughs> So what does this whole process cost? Uh, because you know, when people die, a lot of people unfortunately don't think about the cost of things like burial or cremation. What what is doing this uh I'm going to call it composting. I know you have a fancier way of of putting it, <laughs> but it's basically that. What does it cost? Yeah, so it costs around $5,000. Each of the larger scale providers has a slightly different price. It goes from about $5,000 up to $7,7500, which is actually lower than the average cost of a funeral in the United States today, which is at about $7,400. Do you get pushback from people who are just like, you know what, this is different? than cremation. I get what you're saying about pollution and all that, but if I'm going to be buried, then you stick me in the ground and then I have a headstone and all that. If I'm going to be cremated, then I can be scattered in the ocean. It feels way different than like, honestly, turning into dirt and then being put in a flower bed and then like, okay, I helped those flowers, but like what happens next year? Am I just, there I went, you know, although I guess I'm dead. So there I went anyways. That I think is, is exactly right. We're just made up of a bunch of molecules. And so what happens to our molecules after we're gone is Um, Hopefully we can choose things that make us feel good and that are aligned with the values that we lived by in our lives. Uh, And I think that that's what this offers people. And the the wonderful thing about this is it's about consumer choice. And so no one is forcing anyone to make any of these choices. It's really and truly up to each of us as an individual to see what resonates most with us. There are, are, of course, going to be some people for religious and other reasons who will always want to choose a traditional burial or cremation. Um, And this is simply another option. 
If we mentioned that it's legal in Washington, Colorado, and Oregon. How's it going there in terms of demand? Yeah, it's been incredible. Uh, we launched our business in March of this year, and we have been at capacity within a month and a half of launching. And uh, we are basically building additional vessels as fast as possible. We've had many people do pre-arrangements with us as well. So that's people who are saying, I know I want this. I'm going to pre-plan and pre-pay for it so that I can be sure that this is what will happen in the future. And we have had thousands of people reach out to us from all across the United States asking for our services. Um, and it has been brought to legislatures across the United States um, and largely done by really grassroots individuals going to the representatives saying, this is what I want. Please make it legal in my state. Let me preface this by saying, I hope this is years and years away, but are you going to do this? Of course. Yes. I, that's, that's ultimately, I, I'm actually trained, I was volunteering with a hospice and I'm trained as an end-of-life doula, and that's how I heard about this method. And for me, I um, I would consider myself to be an environmentalist and a nature lover. And so when I heard about this, it just immediately resonated with me on a, I would say, deeply kind of spiritual and ecological level. And to me, it seems like, of course, this is what I would want. It makes a ton of sense. Okay, you know, I was listening to the pitch. I'm getting, yeah. I'm you, getting there a little bit. Up to it. <laughs> yeah. I, well, should I tell uh, my idea? I wanted to be when I, I wanted to be sprinkled on soft served ice cream. It's so oh. weird. <laughs> That's just my thing. Of all the things to come up. With. Yeah, but but <laughs> is there a market for that? That's that's no. a question you'll have to do some research no. on. <laughs> I'm not going to tell her I want to be blasted into space because that's not eco-friendly. Uh, Carolyn Mazes, co-founder of Earth Funeral, offers human composting. Is that what you want to be? You yeah, want to be blasted into space? Yeah, put me on the rocket space? and shoot me in. You know, they, they do it like a bunch of you at a time. What do you mean a bunch of you at a time? Like, you know, multiple little urns. Not all at once? No, not just one person per rocket. That would be super wasteful. Yeah. But like, you know, a whole group of you. There you go. Oh, so you have got company. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's, you could have like a party. And the site's up there. Great. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm getting sold more and more in the composting yeah, thing. Yeah. Power is still out to many people in Puerto Rico as the island looks to recover from the devastation left behind by Hurricane Fiona. Not just a lack of electricity that's a problem. A lot of people don't have running water. Aid organizations already doing everything they can to help. With us is Dr. Michelle Carlo, medical advisor for the organization Direct Relief. Doctor, uh, take us through some of what you've, you've been seeing after the storm rolled through. Oh, good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Um, well, unfortunately, what we're seeing um, in the past 48 hours, 72 hours, is a lot of similar things that we saw after Hurricane Maria, despite the difference in the categories of these two storms. Um, Fiona has delivered so much rain in Puerto Rico and in many places, many, more, many, many more inches of rain than with Hurricane Maria. Um, where wind speed was a major cost, uh, major, uh, cost, cost the major damages in the island. What sort of medical issues are you seeing? Um, well, right now it's an issue of access. So, um, there are people that have suffered direct, uh, the direct, uh, problems or impacts from the storm itself. People that have been dragged by currents, whose houses have been, uh, flooded and have had uh, near drownings, et cetera. But for the most part, it's an issue of people accessing, whether it is uh, other types of emergencies that are always occurring at the same time, like regular, uh, other regular medical emergencies, as well as people that need uh, 
continuous care for chronic medical illnesses. We have heard of people needing dialysis, for example, who are in isolated communities that have no access due to uh, roads that are with, uh, covered with landslides or bridges that have been destroyed. We've, we've heard of people needing uh, generators to run uh, tracheostomy to and ventilators at home. Um, one of our team members was dispatched today to bring a generator to Barranquitas, one of community in the mountains, for such a reason. So there are emergencies that are directly tied to the storm, but there's others that are always ongoing, and they are exacerbated by the conditions left over by the storm. And for those areas, if we're talking the interior, some of these more isolated communities, those are the places where, again, electricity is probably not back yet, and there's running water problems. If you're right in the city, maybe you've got some of this and you're doing all right, but it's it's these other areas that, that we can't forget about. Well, actually, it's actually more widespread. I am in the city and I have no electricity, and many people in the city even do not have running water. So right now, 65% of all of Puerto Rico has no running water, and about 80% of all of Puerto Rico does not have power. So even though, uh, as you say, those areas tend to be more impacted because people do not either do not have uh, the, the facility or the or the finances to have generators. Um, the, the power blackout is pretty widespread. Does it make you very angry that a lot of the current issue has been exacerbated, I would expect or suspect, uh, because the infrastructure hasn't been adequately repaired from the hurricane five years ago? Yeah, I th- we've learned that anger doesn't get us anywhere. So, yes, we're frustrated, uh, but we're just uh, working really hard, both on the personal level and with direct relief to change things. Um, direct relief is pushing hard to support and uh, fund uh, solar power installations in Puerto Rico, for example. We know that Puerto Rico enjoys sunshine for the most part of the year, so there is absolutely no reason why solar power should not be one of the main sources of energy in the island and direct relief has established um, 16 projects in federally qualified health centers. We have uh, provided solar power and batteries for three EMS stations in the island. And we are happy to inform that they have been operational throughout this power, power blackout and emergency. So, you know, we're just trying with our work to demonstrate and uh, that this can be done. And we just need to cut through the red tape and get it done. Is that happening more now than it used to? I mean, we mentioned the repairs haven't been all made since since the last hurricane. We asked this the other day. I mean, how do you get over that feeling of not being or, or being forgotten? Does it feel like that out there? I mean, if people hear lost power for a few days, they would be so loud. And they'd be like, this is outrageous. Why don't I have electricity? But storm rolls through Puerto Rico and power's out and 60% of the island doesn't have water. And you're sitting there going, why can't we get any help? Definitely. And I think that, that it has been hurt to some degree because we feel that there is a there's a lot of um, interest from the part of the federal government and agencies as to what is going on with the money that was uh, earmarked for Puerto Rico right after Maria. Um, even before Fiona, uh, the governor of Puerto Rico sat down before the government uh, accountability office and, and, you know, it was revealed uh, that only 20 percent, I'm sorry, only 20 billion of the 60 billion dollars that were assigned to Puerto Rico have been actually disbursed. So, you know, I think people are starting to realize that the the ball has to get rolling quicker because we are going to get storms. We are in the path of storms that's never going to change and it's never going to be, you know, under our control. We just need to be prepared so that we can withstand storms and get through them quicker. And I think, uh, you know, recovery is 
100% dependent on how prepared we are. So that's what Direct Relief is doing, preparing Puerto Rico to be better prepared and therefore recover quicker. You know, I'm curious, uh, in the mainland, uh, there's been a, a kind of, I don't know, I guess an exodus of uh, veteran doctors because of the pandemic. A lot of There was a lot of burnout, and a lot of people just decided to leave the medical profession. I'm wondering about the medical profession in Puerto Rico, where you are. Uh, I mean, first you had the, the horrible uh, aftermath of the last hurricane five years ago. You're not yet up and running when along comes a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic. Uh, now maybe you're recovering from that pandemic and you get slammed with another hurricane. It's got to be, I would think, a drain on people in your profession. Absolutely. And um, like you very well said, you have to add to everything you just said, the fact that after Maria, we lost about 25% of the medical workforce um, in Puerto Rico, mostly subspecialties that are extremely needed in the island and um, so every time there's something like this, I always tell people that the only thing that separates how we live in Puerto Rico from the people who live in the mainland is our zip code. So we can just pick up, move, we speak English, we can set up practice in the United States and kind of overcome a lot of things and hurdles that we are we face here in Puerto Rico. Dr. Michelle Carlo, medical advisor for the aid organization Direct Relief there in Puerto Rico. Doctor, thanks for talking to us. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. You looking for ways to lower your blood pressure? Strengthening the muscles you used to breathe can apparently help. New study out of the University of Colorado found a daily five-minute technique using a resistance breathing training device lowered the top number of your blood pressure reading by nine. Now that's being called significant. With us is Dr. Michael Joyner, a physician at the Mayo Clinic who studies how the nervous system regulates blood pressure. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Why would strengthening the muscles that you use to breathe have a significant effect on your blood pressure? Well, well, a couple things, guys. The first thing is, is you know, your your respiratory muscles are muscles, and when you breathe against the resistance, you're exercising them. When you exercise them, the blood flow to those muscles go up, and that improves the function of the lining of the blood vessels called the vascular endothelium, which tends to make blood pressure go down. That's one reason. The other reason is when you stretch the lungs, when you stretch the lungs, nerves in the lung communicate with the brain and say, and, and that, that stretch in the lungs tells the brain to reduce your heart rate and blood pressure. So there's a couple of reasons uh, why this is such an interesting result, but a couple of reasons uh, explain why it makes so much sense and, and why the folks in Colorado got the findings that they did. So is this on par with like a certain level of exercise that we should be doing? Or is this not one or the other? Is this really like a, hey, you need to exercise study? Or is it, hey, you need to practice your breathing techniques study? Yes and yes, all of the above. Uh, And and you're, you know, we're at the classic thing that we have at medical school where it's true, true and related. So the first thing (laughs) is, is that this is a form of exercise. So it's terrific for people that for whatever reasons can't get out and do traditional exercise, uh, you know, maybe they're 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 bedridden or they're they're uh, just can't get up and go out for a walk or, or go to the gym. So you could do it under those circumstances, but I think it would probably have an additive effect because of the 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 other effects of deep breathing that I mentioned. So so I think it's a it's really a twofer. So is it true or just related that if you uh, end up doing these exercises, perhaps you can dump the meds? I I think you have to be a little bit careful there, but I think one thing that is pretty clear is that many people who tune up their lifestyle 
who are on blood pressure medicines uh, with the advice of their physician under the supervision of their physician or nurse practitioner can over time uh, demedicalize themselves and, and go to either lower doses of their meds, reduce one of several meds, or even sometimes uh, go off meds completely. So I think that that is something that people need to think about, but it needs to be done in a carefully controlled way. Do you think people think that's not always an option like, oh, Times come now. I'm on blood pressure meds forever. They're never getting off of them. But if you do do the lifestyle tune-up, that maybe you can. Oh, under many many circumstances, uh, and under in, in many many people, they can either get off the meds or reduce their meds through a combination of weight loss, improved diet, and especially exercise. No question about it. But I also wonder how you know how pressed for time doctors Correct. are. Uh, you know, and I wonder how many patients are going to go to their doctors and say. Hey, doctor, is there a way I can get off the meds and, and do maybe some? And instead of, you know, going through the whole exercise thing or giving them a sheet, perhaps outlining what they need to do, it's easier for the doctor to just say, stick with your meds. I'll give you a refill on your prescription. Well, I think you, you hit on a very important point is, is that, you know, one of the things that happens in medical school is we're trained to do exactly what you describe as opposed to help people intervene in their lifestyles. It's time consuming. And and the, the nature of, of medical appointments, but I think it's one of those things that that uh, if the patients can develop a good working relationship with their physician or or uh, again nurse practitioner, I think it's something over time people can achieve. Can I go out and buy what did we call it a resistance breathing training device? Yeah, there are several on the market. Uh, in, in the study, they have a specific brand that they mention, and and they're widely available. All right, Dr. Michael Joyner, physician of the Mayo Clinic, studies how the nervous system regulates blood pressure. People, businesses, government over the past decade or so have moved past those old incandescent light bulbs and are now using LEDs. Now, the idea is that they're more efficient and better for the environment. Might not be a win all around, though. Some environmentalists now saying those LEDs are adding to the light pollution problem. Travis Longcore, urban ecologist at UCLA, Ruskin Hartley, Executive Director of the International Dark Sky Association, both with us. Uh, Ruskin, let's start with you. So we made the trade-off, did we, in terms of, hey, we're saving energy and these are better, but what, they're lighting up the sky more? Yeah, that's a great question. They're definitely lining up the sky more. And I actually think if you look at it from an energy-saving perspective, we've taken some of the savings we could have made, we deployed them as putting more light out there at higher light levels that we don't need. So we've actually reduced our energy savings whilst we've also increased the level of light pollution. Yeah, you know, uh, Travis, I, I was thinking it's not just the, the night sky, but I don't know about you, but when I'm on the road at night, I mean, all these cars, my own included, that have LED lights in the in the back, they drive me crazy because they blind you. They really do. Yeah, certainly that's related. And, and it's a phenomenon that's associated with street lighting and the car lights, which is the very high blue content is harder, especially... Um, I hate to admit, as we get older and our, our eyes age, uh, there's more uh, scattering of the blue light in, in, our, in our eyes. Uh, but blue light in general uh, is, is not the direction we want to be going, both for the night sky, for wildlife, for human health. But I do have to say, it's not just that LEDs are inherently, there's something inherently wrong with them. It's simply the colors that we've been choosing to use. We now have LED technologies that can uh, solve the problems that were created by putting in these very high um, high blue content, very uh, glaring lights. We have the technology to do it, even with LEDs. So it's actually a win to make it better from here. Well, I remember not too long ago, one of the companies, it's probably DWP, sent around a bunch of free light bulbs. And when you put them in, they were like the very 
white, white, and everyone was like, I, I don't like this. Where's my warm glow? Like, we, we yeah. were used to more of a, a yellow, like a softer kind of tone at home anyways. Yep, and those are now available. Um, and so, and I do believe that the bulbs they've sent out more recently have uh, toned it down uh, a little bit as the as the LED industry has has matured, and we can actually uh, solve the issues that that uh, people like uh, International Dark Sky Association that Ruskin works for and that scientists uh, have been working toward. Well, Ruskin, are you uh, happy with, maybe that's a bad word, uh, you know, the lighting, for example, in L.A., uh, New York City, I know another, they've been replacing pretty systematically the old kind of yellowish, I guess they were sodium lights, with very bright white LED lights. I mean, that can't make you happy. You know, as, I mean, as Travis alluded to, we're not against LEDs per se. It's really about how we're thinking about how we're applying the light there. And often what's happening is we're just blasting too much light into the sky at all times of night. So it's really about, you think about the total amount of light that we're using is just running away from us. And and what's happening as as is so common in basic economics, as something gets cheaper, we tend to use more of it. And I think we need to break from that cycle. And we're starting to see some some wins here, like the city of of uh, New York, for instance, last year did pass an ordinance that say public buildings during bird migration season will turn those lights off. And in fact, there's a bill before on Governor Newsom's desk at the moment that will, for the first time, have public buildings dimming lights down, turn them off when they're not used. It just makes common sense. So use the light when you need it to meet our bona fide needs. And when there's no one around, dim them down or turn them off. It's really a win-win in those circumstances. So Travis Ruskin mentioned the birds. Uh, how, how does this light, and maybe not the light that they're accustomed to, how does this affect animals? Sure. Well, we know a lot about this now because of the use of our weather radar to document birds during migration. And what we have documented, people, researchers around the country have shown uh, that you can draw birds dramatically off course uh, by the lights. They get attracted to the lights. Uh, and maybe the most uh, striking example of this is the Tributan light at the uh, in New York City, where when they turn those those spotlights on going straight up into the sky, they can go from a few hundred birds uh, circling around to uh, 15,000 birds in the in the order of, of 20 minutes. Uh, so it, it and, and we have this massive continent wide migration that goes on twice a year uh, here in North America. And every time we're wasting light by by letting it escape upward, we're actually affecting those birds. They get attracted to urban areas. And then there's other things that happen. They run into buildings. Uh, there's a lot of perhaps uh, free roaming cats around. There's other dangers uh, during the daytime, glass, uh, et cetera. And so light is part of that uh, bird conservation equation. Travis, I can't think of an industry, I'm trying to, no, I can't, that doesn't have a lot of lobbyists behind them to try to make sure that nothing harms their economic interests. I would imagine that the LED lighting uh, industry is no different. Well, let me just say this, that uh, people like uh, Ruskin and I actually are participating with industry on national and international bodies uh, to try to come up with the guidelines that let us achieve their goals, which is lighting for safety and sometimes aesthetics, uh, along with our goals, which is saving energy, uh, saving uh, the night sky, saving the wildlife and our own health. And so interestingly here, even though I'm sure there are those who would argue uh, we're going to put what we want to put because we want it there, um, there is an enormous uh, basis here for cooperation as the science can be brought into uh, the uh, the say for the regulatory or advisory bodies uh, to 
put forward uh, solutions uh, to what's uh, evolved here over over the past uh, years. Ruskin, do you have a goal? Is it like full moon level or because that seems like a far away time now since we've been there? Well, yeah, that, I mean, yeah, our goal would be to mitigate light pollution where it is and really enable people to recover and restore their natural connection to the to the night sky around us, which is has been part of the human condition for as long as we've been on, on, on the planet. So really, I think that the, the goal is twofold. It's really to have people understand that it's not a choice. We're not presenting a choice between light and dark. We really want people to lean into good quality lighting. Good quality lighting is part of a sustainable urban environment. It's part of the fabric of light. And actually, LEDs are part of the solution. The, the quantity, qualities of LEDs in terms of their controllability and the other characteristics means if, if when done well, uh, we can both reduce our impact on the night sky and we can save energy. That's what the city of Tucson has done. It's actually what the DOE has suggested. The DOE has suggested by 2035, we could save $15.6 billion a per year in the U.S. by using light properly and appropriately uh, during the nighttime hours. Is this mostly a U.S. issue? No, this is definitely a global issue. Europe Europe is ahead of us, both in terms of the levels of light pollution and probably also in terms of its, its awareness that light pollution is a real issue uh, that needs to be de- dealt with at the national and international level. Uh, we estimate 99% of people in the US and North America live under light polluted skies and probably 83% of people on the planet live under light polluted skies. But unlike air and water pollution, they're not aware of it. And unlike air and water pollution, the solutions are at hand and they don't cost much. Ruskin Hartley with the International Dark Sky Association, Travis Longcore, urban ecologist, UCLA. I remember one time I got stuck on the backside of Kauai because the road washed out yeah. and it was pitch black, middle of the night. And I looked up and I was like, this is what it's supposed to look like. It, it was, was a pa- it was a painting. It was amazing. <laughs> so highly recommend getting stuck on the back of an island. All right. More in depth to come. Actually, no. Yeah, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Show's over today, folks. Yeah, but there's more tomorrow.